Jesus has had quite a day already. He's done one, at least, miracle healing and had a slight tiff and argument with some of the Pharisees. And as a follow to that, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting in his tax booth. Follow me, he said. And Levi got up and left everything and followed Jesus. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. And Jesus answered, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away. In those days then they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise they will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out and the wineskins be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking the old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. Good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. It's a blessed thing to know our position for a Lord and Savior who is full of truth and grace. Amen? Amen. When I grow up, I want to read just like Gordon Parrish. <laughs> Gordon, thank you so much for your reading. Well, I got to tell you, today also someone returns who is kind of a spiritual mother to me. And Velma Lee, where are you? There you are. She's a little hard to see. We're so glad you're back here with us. Today we start our, uh, oh, before I get off on the sermon, uh, don't forget, ladies, uh, uh, it's, it's uh, for anyone who likes going to see the lights, we will do that uh, Tuesday. There's a sign-up sheet. Several has, have asked me, do I pick up people at the house. Yes, I run a very good taxi service, and if you need me to pick you up, you just let me know, and we will pick you up from your house. All right, all that house cleaning out of the way. New sermon series, The Parables of Jesus. For the next, oh, 10, 12, and longer, if it takes that much, we're going to systematically go through all the parables of Jesus Christ and look at them. And we're going to start this morning with the conflict of the old and the new. Now, 
This is found in all three of the synoptic gospels, but we're going to focus on Luke 5, 33 through 39. So if you have a Bible, open it up, Matthew, Mark, Luke, open it up to Luke chapter 5, and we are device friendly, so if you have a you have a Bible on your device, pull it out and open it up to Luke 5, 33 through 39. And that's where we'll start the parables. A little bit of backdrop for this. Christ has gotten off the boat in the Sea of Galilee. He goes and does a miracle, as you said, Gordon, and then... He walks into his own city. We're thinking this is Capernaum. And he walks into Capernaum. When you walk into Capernaum, that's where they collected taxes. And they, he walks up, and here is Levi at the tax table. Not Levi Hudson, but Levi, later to be Matthew. And Matthew is at the tax collecting table. He's a tax collector. He's a traitor to his people. He's part of the Roman occupation now, and he's looked at as a traitor and as a disgusting. If there ever was a us and them, Levi is now a them in everyone's mind. And Jesus Christ walks up to him and says, follow me. Can you believe how long has it been since someone of the Israel nation showed him any respect and suddenly this young rabbi, who everybody is raving about, walks up and says, follow me. What an honor to be called by this rabbi. And Levi just leaves everything there and follows Christ. And what can he do but throw Christ a party? And so he does. But if you're a traitor, if you're a social outcast... Who are you going to invite to your party? Other traitors, other tax collectors, other sinners, other social outcasts. You're going to invite them to the party because that's who you know. And so Jesus goes to this party. And while he's at the party, the Sadducees, excuse me, the Pharisees and the scribes totally freak out on him. The Pharisees and the teachers or the scribes can't believe what they're seeing. Their world is made up of exclusion and rituals, uh, like fasting on Mondays and Thursdays. They were fasting two times a week, yet the only time that they were commanded to fast was on the Day of Atonement. Their world is made up of pushing people back. They have forgotten Hosea 6 and 6, where, where God says, I, I desire mercy, not sacrifices. Their rituals and their traditions have become their religion. There's nothing about the love of God in these people. They had what I'd like to call this morning OCRD, Obsessive Compulsive Ritual Disorder. Obsessive compulsive ritual disorder. Have you ever had that? Have you ever been a part of that? Because I have. 
I can remember one time when I was a kid and somebody put a devotional on and they ended the devotional after a song instead of a prayer. Inside, I was going ballistic. David, how could you do that? End of service on a song. I said, Dad, do you not know what you're doing? Gordon reminded me of this last week. We were in a business meeting. If you ever want to have a peaceful, quiet, nice evening, don't attend one. And so we're at this business meeting for the church, and all the guys are in there, and all the deacons and the elders, and, and some of the, the, the men, just plain members are in there, and we're talking about how things are going and what we can do to bring more people to Christ. And all of a sudden, in the middle of it, somebody says the fatal words, does anyone else have anything to say? And did he? This little guy stands up. He might have been 100 pounds soaking wet, right? And he goes, well, I'm disturbed at this, this, and this. Well, we had broken the order of worship that he was used to, and we were reading the Bible at the wrong time. OCRD? I've been a part of it. Maybe you have. They cared more, these Pharisees, they cared more about those things than practicing mercy, justice, and the love of God. They could care less about those who are hurting around them, those who are seeking the kingdom of God. Forget the widows, forget the fatherless, forget the disenfranchised, forget those who are trying to serve God. What they really want to know is... Malcolm, did you wash your hands before you ate? And if you don't believe me, look at Luke 11 and 38. That's exactly what they were concerned about. Later in Christ's ministry, it gets so bad that Christ just comes to them and says, after he chews them out for about seven verses, you are slamming the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces with your traditions and your rules and your rituals. Jesus comes on the scene and he breaks all the man-made rules, all the man-made traditions. He's not interested in traditions. He's interested in God's will, the plan of redeeming humanity back to him. Saving us, John, is what he's really concerned with. And bringing, unleashing the kingdom of heaven here on earth. Suddenly, Christ arrives on the scene, and he's worshiping everywhere, practices mercy with everyone. He's having conversations with Samaritan women living in adultery, Syrophoenician women who are Canaanite descendants, harlots. He's allowing them to wash his feet and anoint him. He touches lepers and encourages men who just had an exorcism, who've known him for less than a day, Rick, to go out and witness to all his community. And he's inviting tax collectors to follow him. You see, Christ is breaking in a new day, a new era, a new covenant. And it's not that he wants to break the rules. He's not breaking the rules. He didn't come to break the rules. He came to fulfill the law. 
the law of forgiveness and grace and freedom and peace and living in a celebratory community of love. And I don't think they had a clue to what he was really about because the very next scene, the Pharisees and John the Baptist disciples come and ask a very OCRD question. So now Christ is about to tell them what it looks like and how to embrace this. They come to Jesus' disciples and they ask him, how come your disciples don't fast like our disciples, like we do, twice a week to be good Jewish men? And Christ says, how can they? How can they mourn? How can they fast? They still have the groom with them. Christ says, when the groom is with them, it's a celebration. It's a party. Everybody is loving on each other and respecting each other, and they're having a good time. How inappropriate would it be for the groomsmen to suddenly start mourning while the groom is still there? Christ's metaphor bears Christ himself out as the groom and his disciples as the groomsmen. Or, Mike, as the King James Version says, the bride chamber. Don't really know what that means, but it stands for groomsmen. Christ is the groom and his disciples, his best men, his best friends, are with him. The metaphor is nothing new. We see this analogy used over and over again in Scripture. We even see it in the Old Testament and will in just a moment. This is Christ. He is the groom and his followers are his friends, are his bride, is the church. Christ is giving us a look into the intimate, close relationship of the covenant things to come. I no longer call you servants because servants does not know the master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Do you see that intimate, close relationship? Christ is giving a look into the future of things to come. Christ tells us we're his friends. Christ is trying to relay to these very OCRD people that it's not about rituals, it's not about tradition, it's about relationships with one another horizontally and with our divine God vertically. Amen? I think Christ is also using the marriage metaphor to give us an idea of this relationship is a relationship of joy. Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, a new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. How exciting. One that changes everything. 
one that is supposed to transform us into something new and different. Sometimes I'm afraid, church, that we still live in that dull old life and don't take hold of that new life of hope and faith and love and we don't let that dominate our lives. In this metaphor, there is a sense of impending heartache, though, because Christ says, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days, they will fast. They will mourn. Jesus is pointing to his death. For three days, the entire world will mourn. For three days, things will look hopeless, but then he's resurrected. Then the kingdom of God has broken in to the world. When I was younger, I used to read the scripture, and I thought that he was, Alex, that he was trying to say, um, we can't be happy and we're going to mourn until Jesus comes again. But that, that doesn't synchronize with the rest of Scripture. That doesn't synchronize with the idea of, of celebrating being in Christ, right? So now I believe this Scripture is when he says they're going to be taken and there'll be a time to mourn. I believe that was for those three days and those three days only. And now we're in that new covenant relationship where we should live in joy and peace and have exciting lives because we are in Christ. Over and over again, he told to we are told to live in joy and peace and hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. We need to be joyful, peace-loving people. But somehow, sometimes I think we, we grab hold of gloom and doom. Just last week, I think we do this to ourselves sometimes. Just last week, we sang a song, and the first verse started with these words. Living below in this old sinful world, hardly a comfort can I afford. Really? I mean, I understand when James Coates wrote this, he wrote it in 1939, or excuse me, 1839, no, 1939, help me, Jack, you were around back then, the Great Depression. <laughs> he wrote it in the Great Depression, and I get that. Maybe a comfort he couldn't afford back then. It was tough times, it was hard times, because I tell you today, I don't live in that world. I live a very blessed life, an incredibly affluent life where I get to do things that I want to and I get to interact with people and I get to, because of other people's sacrifice, I get to live in one of the greatest nations in the world at peace. I think maybe we should live in that. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't walk out those doors and say, well, Keith is putting down, where could I go but to the Lord? I love that song, okay? I just don't like the first verse. 
the rest of it I completely spiritually, theologically like. I live in Christ. Of all people, I am given every spiritual blessing. Maybe it's time that we realize that and we live like that. Amen? Our next two parables are what we know as twin parables. Both pointing to the same reality, but just a little bit from different perspectives. Okay? Now, Jesus is the master storyteller. So, he's already presented... Sophie, this idea of this wedding picture, okay, with the groom and the groomsman. So now what happens at weddings? Well, one of the things is you wear new clothes, right? I mean, when's the last time you went to a wedding and the bride wasn't decked out in something new? And what do you also do at a wedding? You celebrate. They drank wine. And so the next two parables. The first one is about patching an old garment with the new, with new cloth. Christ says you, you can't take a, a new garment and just cut some out and then put it on an old garment. First of all, you just ruin the new pair of pants, okay? And second of all, if you put this unshrunk, this brand new piece of cloth on these old wore-out pants and you wash them, what's going to happen? It's going to rip a bigger hole. So now you've destroyed the first because you put a hole in it, and the second, you're getting ready to run out and turn that washing machine off before it runs, aren't you? And the second one is like it. It's about pouring new wine in old wineskins. You see, old wine had fermented and grown and stretched, and then the wineskin would harden, and it would be set to a certain size. And then if you took new wine and poured it into that old wineskin... Because there is a certain amount of fermentation that's already happened there, it will start the fermentation process over again. And when it does, it's got to swell. And when it swells because that old wineskin is hard and set in its ways, it will crack and it will burst. And both the old wineskin and the new wine will be wasted. It will just pour out onto the ground. Jesus, of course, is talking to his Jewish audience. At this point, you, you can't, he's saying you can't piece the old covenant to the new covenant. You can't take the old covenant law and make it work in this new covenant of grace. The two can't mix. And if you try, you're going to ruin both of them. Jesus is talking about what Moses uh, prophesied in Deuteronomy 18 and 18 when he said, I will send them a prophet like you. This prophet will be one of their own people. I will tell him what he must say, and he will tell my people 
everything I command. This is the new prophet standing before them, getting ready to tell them about the covenant that Jeremiah told us about. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of Egypt. They broke the covenant, though I love them like a husband loves his wife. You see that metaphor again? Says the Lord, but this is the new covenant, and I will make it with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord, and I will put my instructions deep within them, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Jesus is now ushering in that new covenant, and it will not work with the old the old law foretold about this new covenant, this new relationship with God, grace given to us by faith. In verse 36, Jesus is very plain that you cut something out of the new garment and you ruin the new covenant. You try to patch up the old covenant with the new and you make the old covenant worse. But over and over again, the Jews tried to patch Christianity with Judaism or Judaism with Christianity, and it didn't work, did it? It didn't matter if it was in Acts 15 or at the Jerusalem Council where they were try, the, the Pharisees were trying to patch in the old with the new, or if it were the Galatian brothers and sisters who were trying to bring the two together. It doesn't work. So you can't patch legalism in with Christianity. You can't practice legalism and be a Christian. You can't practice materialism and Christianity. They don't mix. You, you, you can't be self-promoting and make Christ your all in all. Folks, Things haven't changed. The Jews were trying to patch their old worn-out law with the new covenant. But can I tell you that some of us try the same thing today? It's not the old covenant we're trying to patch, but our lives are just not what they ought to be, so we just take a little bit of Christianity and we apply it to our lives and it doesn't work. We try to take just a little bit of Christianity and fix our lives, and that doesn't work. It takes the whole garment. The parable of the new wine is stating the same thing that the new garment and the old garment. You, you can't pour new wine of the old law into, it can't contain the the new grace. They won't mix. It's going to burst. But then Jesus adds a single line in Luke to kind of get the point across about this twin parable. The second parable has a little bit different twist on the end. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new. For they say, Gordon, the old is better. 
That's human nature, isn't it? It hasn't changed at all since first century Christianity. We don't like change. We don't want change. We've been drinking that old wine and that new wine ain't going to work. The challenge here is not to take on every new change or as some say, to change just to change. Are you listening? The challenge is not to take on every new change just to change. That's not the point. The point is change when it is good should not be resisted. Change when it is good should not be resisted. When we become so OCRD that we can't change, then we have an issue. So let me give you four, at least, there are at least four good things to weigh in to help you make the decision if you should change anything. First, does the change go against the commands of the New Testament teaching? Can I tell you, if someone wants to change something, someone wants to practice something new and it goes against what the Bible commands, we need to say no, okay? If it is a sin, we need to call sin, sin, right? Number two, does it change or exclude anyone from entering the kingdom of heaven? If we ever change anything, we need to make sure that it doesn't exclude anyone from the kingdom of heaven based on race, ethnicity, nationality, 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 or socioeconomic stand, status. Number three, does the change edify the church and its members? Whatever we're doing, does it build up or does it tear down? Does it devalue people or demean anyone? If it does, then we don't want to be a part of it. As Monty Cox says in the class that we started this morning, by the way, that's a great class to be in at 9.30 on Sunday morning if you're not going to class. It's about world religions. We don't step on the neck of others to raise up Christ, is the quote. Number four, does the change engage the lost to come to Christ? Does it speak to the lost? Does it reflect the joy in our hearts? Does it help us to witness telling people about our Savior? And does it make disciples of Christ? And if it does, you need to wholeheartedly wrap your arms around it and change. Amen? We are about being kingdom people and drawing more people into the kingdom. Well, three things I want you to walk away with this morning. So if you're asleep, it's time to wake up. I got three things for you to remember as you walk out of the door. See life through a celebratory eyes of Christ. Life is to be enjoyed and celebrated in Christ in a community of saints as a spiritual family. Amen. Thank you. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Amen. Don't resist change 
if change is good. I don't know where you are this morning, but I know this. This church loves people. This church desires for as many people to belong to this family as possible. And when you belong to this family, we will love on you like you're a brother or a sister. If you haven't committed yourself to Christ, if you haven't repented of your sins, if you haven't confessed Jesus Christ as the Son of God, if you haven't put him on in baptism, this is the time to come forward. If you have something on your heart and you want us to pray with you, we'll do that. If it's too intimidating to come up to these first pews, there'll be at least one loving, kind elder at the back who would love to speak with you. Won't you do that now as we stand and we sing?